Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Brethren, let us hear the Word of God. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John did baptize in the wilderness, and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair, and with a girdle of a skin about his loins. And he did eat locusts and wild honey, and preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. <clears throat> and straightway, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. Now, after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of His precious and holy word to our hearts this morning. <clears throat> Under the guiding influence of the Holy Spirit, Mark introduces his graphic account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ with the words, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Few people could read in Mark's day, at least some estimates are that the literacy rate was between 10 and 15 percent. So he wrote his account to be read aloud publicly. This is how people heard the good news as it was recorded. But Mark is not merely offering us an interesting piece of literature that we might call a biography. He's not interested in simply telling a good story, though this is the greatest of stories. 
Mark wants Jesus Christ exalted in the salvation of sinners. He wants eternal souls saved for all eternity. So he launches immediately into the action of God's mighty saving power with this abrupt introduction. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John begins in eternity. Matthew and Luke both begin with uh, the uh, story of Christ's birth. But Mark immediately launches into Christ's public ministry with these words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, after this, 16 dramatic chapters of Christ's person and work unfold. We read of Jesus' victory over the powers of darkness and disease. His relationship to His disciples, His family, His enemies, the people of Israel. And we read of His matchless triumph over sin, death, and hell by His crucifixion. Resurrection and ascension. Now Mark closes his last chapter with Christ's command to preach this gospel to every creature. And Jesus then ascends into glory and he works with his disciples confirming the gospel as they harvest immortal souls for Christ's kingdom. Now this gospel is indeed the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Amen. So the first 15 verses that we've read this morning are Mark's prologue. And they are the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now one of the reasons I take the time to hammer that out is because today, in the minds of most people, the gospel is two sentences or four steps. And of course we can compress gospel truth into various essentials to set before people. But don't miss the fact that 16 chapters here are the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now having said that, if we carefully study the message of John the Baptist here and of Jesus, we encounter a word that is rarely heard in modern Christianity. And that is the word repent. The preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ is 
is not properly set before men, except we call them to repent. It appears that many professing Christians are strangers to both the meaning and the practice of repentance. And we must conclude from this that many who populate the professing Christian congregations are at best on extremely shaky ground when it comes to the true condition of their eternal souls. At worst, they are traveling the broad way that leads to hell and destruction while quite content and deceived that they are on the narrow way that leads to heaven and life. This is very sobering. If we don't understand the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what may we conclude about our knowledge of the rest of it? So God being our helper, we will for the next few weeks take up the subject of repentance as it is revealed to us in the Word of God. The title of this morning's message is taken from Christ's first words in the Gospel, Repent ye. Repent ye. We want to consider this under three heads this morning. The first is the nature of repentance. The nature of repentance. Secondly, we want to consider the necessity of repentance. And finally, the importance of repentance. Mark tells us that John the Baptist burst upon the scene baptizing in the wilderness and preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. That's in verse 4. Now while Mark doesn't quote John uh, specifically here in these first verses, Matthew does in his gospel. He tells us in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And notice the striking similarity to what the Lord Jesus Christ said. Repent Ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The voice crying in the wilderness was crying, Repent! And when Jesus followed Him, taking over the disciples, baptizing and preaching 
he preached the same thing. Repent ye. He filled out what was said. He gave more depth to it. He set himself in the middle of it and called men to himself while John could only point men to him. But he said the same thing. Repent ye and believe the gospel. How did the gospel of the kingdom begin? Well, we have it in verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. This is an announcement. The kingdom of God is at hand. O people of Israel, repent ye and believe that gospel. Now the kingdom of God was inaugurated by the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what was Christ's word to men who would enter that kingdom? Certainly, he said many things. We could go and point out numerous passages of things that he said to sinners. But Mark begins his gospel by giving us the direct quote from the lips of Christ, Repent ye. How many of you have heard a gospel that begins with repent? For that matter, how many of you have ever even heard a message about repentance? If someone actually mentioned the word, did you understand what it meant? If it's the first word from Christ's lips in Mark's gospel, commanding what men ought to do, why do we not hear more about it? Why is it that we actually have people today that say to tell people to repent is legalism? My early days... After my conversion, I was so thrilled with the Word of God. Every time I opened it up, it just virtually exploded off of the page. And every page that I turned, I would see things that, even though I'd looked at that Bible for years, it seemed like they'd never appeared there before. And the word repentance was first in that line. Uh, Among all the things that the Lord said in my heart in those early days, the word repent leapt off the pages over and over and over again. And I attended a church where uh, one of the only times I ever heard the word repentance even mentioned was by a man who was a very highly respected teacher in the church who said, well, we don't worry about repentance. Repentance is for the Jews. That's not for the Gentiles. Now, we will take up and uh, consider some of the various uh, notions of repentance over the next few weeks that are out there today. But we're not going to do that this morning in our first message. But as I was thrilled with this particular notion of repentance, I was invited to a retreat. There were a large number of young people there and I I got up to preach burning in my heart was 
this issue of repentance. I'd been studying it fervently. I'd looked up every uh, reference in the scriptures to it and had thought through and looked at, at all of the all of the different passages that mention repentance. And it was uh, just overflowing in my heart and I got up and I preached on it and I sat down and we were to have a discussion a small group discussion on what I had just taught so I sat down and smiled and there was a, a group of young people sitting around me and I say young they were they were all basically early 20s mid 20s I don't mean teenagers but they were they were uh, in their early uh, to late 20s and they were looking at me, except for one young man who had a scowl on his face. And uh, he had a book in his hand from a popular author that I will not presently address. And he looked at me, and as we were about to have the first words of the discussion regarding the message, he announced to everybody there, pointing to me, this man just preached a false gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but I found that a particularly uncomfortable way to begin a long weekend. But brethren, why, why could anyone reading the Word of God come away with the notion that if someone says what Jesus, the King of heaven and earth, commanded men to do that it was a false gospel. Well, I trust we will see this more clearly as the weeks unfold. But brethren, among those who name themselves children of God today, there are those that when you name the doctrine of repentance... They get angry and they get they get two fisted and they're ready to take you on, you legalist. And brethren, this is one of the reasons the congregations of the churches of Jesus Christ are filled with goats. It is easy to get men to make a decision. No man can bring another man to repent. But we must tell them what Jesus Christ said. <clears throat> there is no true preaching of the gospel that excludes the notion of repentance. Now let me say at the very beginning, it does not mean that every time we open our mouths and say something about Jesus Christ, that we have to say something about repentance. We will see in the weeks ahead that sometimes the word believe is all that's mentioned. Having faith and calling men to faith is all that's said. Certain portions of gospel truth are set before men and you don't see the word repentance. So I'm not saying that every sermon, I'm not saying that every time we open our mouths to another human being about the Lord Jesus Christ must be prefaced with the word repent. 
But I'm saying a preaching, a continued preaching, whose characteristic excludes the doctrine of repentance, is not preaching fully the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, this very word has been virtually eliminated from the vocabulary of modern, comfortable Christianity. What does it mean? Many could not define it if their lives depended upon it. Yet here is the very first word out of Christ's mouth as he calls men to believe his gospel. And it's sad to say that even those who use the word are often confusing or confused in their own understanding of it. So as we consider the nature of repentance, we must begin by defining it. We're going to spend a few minutes doing this. Now, the vocabulary of God's holy word is truly rich when it comes to the notion of repentance. Repentance is a theme found throughout the entire Bible. And its idea is expressed even when the word itself is not used. Brethren, the idea of repentance spans both testaments of Holy Scripture. It is not a a secluded doctrine, often some odd or esoteric portion of God's Word that someone takes out and hammers as his favorite doctrine. The very notion of repentance fills the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, there are two Hebrew words, Nacham and Shub. They're translated repent. Now the first word means to be sorry. Come to regret something. To console oneself. Kyle and Dalich remark in their commentary on the Old Testament, Nacham is the exact expression for metanoeo. That is a Greek word for repentance. The godly sorrow of repentance not to be repented of. He, meaning Job, repents sitting on dust and ashes after the manner of those in deep grief. The root of this word seems to reflect the idea of breathing deeply. And therefore, the physical display of one's feelings, usually sorrow, compassion. Now, unfortunately, most of the confusion regarding repentance comes from overemphasizing this emotional aspect. This particular idea of grief or remorse over wrongdoing 
is the primary notion in most people's mind if they have a notion of repentance. Somehow or, or another is, I've repented if I feel bad enough, if I'm sorry enough. If I say I'm sorry, I've repented. But that is not true. And we must understand what God wants us to see. While repentance includes godly sorrow, we're not casting it out. The primary importance of repentance in the Scripture is not the emotional aspect of regret. The second word, shub, means to turn. To turn. Now this is the word that most vividly displays the primary meaning of repentance in the Old Testament. Shub dominates the language of the Old Covenant Scriptures and it is translated over 500 times as return or return again and 188 times as to turn or to turn back. <clears throat> Jeremiah alone uses the word over a hundred times. The theological word book of the Old Testament says, the Bible is rich in the idioms describing man's responsibility in the process of repentance. Such phrases would include the following, Incline your heart unto the Lord your God. What are men being called to do? Turn their hearts to their God. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Once again, the idea is a change. Something that, that brings a turning to God. Wash your heart from wickedness. Jeremiah 4.14 Break up your fallow ground. Hosea 10, 12. And so forth. And many others. But uh, the word book goes on to say, All these expressions of man's penitential activity, however, are subsumed and summarized by this one verb, shub. For better than any other verb, it combines in itself the two requisites of repentance. All right, now don't miss this. While there is an emotional element to the idea of repentance, here is the main idea. Two requisites of repentance, to turn from evil and to turn to the good. To turn from evil and to turn to the good. It means a complete turnabout. Now, the New, Te New Testament has three verbs. <coughs> the first one is epistrepho. It means to turn back, to return. Luke writes of John the Baptist, And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient of, to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. There it is, to turn the hearts of the fathers. 
<clears throat> now, it is sometimes translated convert. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent ye, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. The word converted there is the word epistrepho. Repent and be turned. As we'll see in the weeks ahead, conversion is made up itself of repentance and faith. There is no true conversion apart from repentance and faith. Metamelamai is another Greek word that is translated into the English repent. And it means to change one's mind about something with the likely implication of regret. You see, they, they put the proper emphasis here. The word itself means to change one's mind about something with an implication of regret. The emotional side of it is not the focus. The focus is changing your mind. Many people have grabbed onto the gospel kind of like children on an old merry-go-round where you would go by and grab a gold ring or a brass ring. Reaching out and just grabbing it as you were going merrily on your own way. This is not the idea in repentance. The idea of repentance means a change of mind. Certainly, that change likely will include regret and remorse. But the remorse is not the change of mind. You can feel bad about being caught. You can have tremendous remorse and never repent. <clears throat> so this word metamelomai means to think differently. We see this in Judas after his betrayal of the Lord Jesus. When Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Judas was lost. Judas was the son of perdition. And yet he manifested a certain kind of repentance. What do we see here? He took the money. He was glad to have the 30 pieces of silver after having betrayed the Lord Jesus. And then he changed his mind. And he brought it back. He said, I've betrayed the innocent blood. And he felt a great regret. So much regret that he went out and hung himself. But there was no repentance unto life. So again, as we'll see in the coming weeks... There's more than one kind of repentance. Finally, there is the word metanoeo. Now, while this verb <clears throat> has an emotional element, once again, of remorse, 
or regret. The New Testament writers use it predominantly as a religious and ethical change in the way one thinks. A religious and ethical change in the way one thinks. Again, after my conversion some 22 years ago or so, I was so thrilled about the things of Christ. I wanted to talk to anybody who wanted to talk about the Lord Jesus. I had come to understand that I had sat in churches for years, believing myself a Christian, and yet was utterly lost. Utterly lost. I don't recall ever hearing a message in my youth about repentance. Never once. The idea was not there in the messages that I heard. The primary idea was, you know, you don't want to go to hell, do you? Well, believe these things right here, and you won't. But there was never truly anyone to press my heart or my conscience from God's Word that the very notion of true and saving faith is tied to this thing we call repentance. There was no change in my life. And brethren, many of you have seen people make decisions. And yet, there's never been any real turnaround in their lives. They talk religion, but there's no change. That is because there is no repentance in their lives. Repentance is a religious and ethical change in the way one thinks. I'm quoting heavily this morning from lexicons for the very purpose of saying to you, this is what those who understand the Greek language the best are saying it means. I don't want to stand here under my own authority whatsoever. I point to the men, to the lexicon, the authorities who do know. So then, if we've defined it this way, what's the actual meaning? How are we to understand it when we read it in the Scriptures? Well, it's like many other words in the, in the, the Holy Bible. We have to take some time and look and study the Word of God to try to understand how the particular writer is using it in that context. As we've already seen, someone like Judas can actually have a repentance and one that's tinged with remorse and with grief and yet lead to death. He went out and hanged himself. There was no life. So, when we take all of these things together that we've looked at, both in the Old Testament words and the New Testament words, the biblical meaning of repentance that emerges is this. A change of mind that leads to a change of lifestyle. A change of mind 
that leads to a change of lifestyle. We must not lose sight of the emotional side of repentance. That's true. It's there. Though in English, an important component of repentance is the sorrow or contrition that a person experiences when coming to a spirit-led knowledge of their sin, the emphasis in the New Testament writers seems to be more specifically the total change, both in thought and behavior with respect to how one should think and act. It's a change of mind, a change of heart, that leads to a change of action. At least one commentator says that it was based on a, a military term, and not all in agreement regarding this, but it is explained by some as what we would call the, the military uh, command about face. Going this way, the command comes, and then I go this way. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, 
they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.